Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Welcome back, everybody, to Fostering Community. My name is Anna Futrell, and I'm Executive Director for CASA of McLennan County here in Waco, Texas. And we are excited today to have a guest with us who's the Associate Judge of the Sentex Child Protection Court North here in Waco. And this is our judge who hears CPS cases for children that are in foster care in our community. So uh, we are grateful to have Judge Nikki Munkowski here with us. Judge, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, a fun fact, uh, the the judge and I go back a little ways. She was actually the judge that presided over my children's adoption in 2016 here in Waco. So we've known each other uh, in this professional capacity and then also for that, that adoption several years ago. Yes, yes, ma'am. So why don't we begin, if you would just kind of tell us a bit about your professional journey and maybe some of the different roles you've had, which led you to this very important role as a judge, and what motivates you to do this work? Okay, well, um, right out of law school, my first job was at an insurance defense firm, which was definitely part of the journey that let me know where I didn't want to go. Uh, I did not find insurance defense rewarding at all. So I left insurance defense and went to work at the 10th Court of Appeals where I had done an internship while I was at Baylor Law School. And the really cool thing about the appellate work is you get to see um, what happened at trial court and then, you know, some of the pitfalls of what people did or didn't do well. Um, And so it kind of has helped me learn how to protect the record and make sure that, um, you know, my client is supported or the outcome is supported so that things are done correctly and that when we get to the end of the case, hopefully um, it will be, um, you know, something that will be upheld on mm-hmm. appeal. And, I, and right. I kind of got that from the Court of Appeals. I left the Court of Appeals then to go to legal aid where I got my first real opportunity to help clients, largely underserved clients. Uh, and that was, I found value in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was there for a while, and then I went out in 1999 in private practice. Um, and so it was, that was really nice to be able to work with folks and help them understand this legal mess that they would have gotten themselves into <laughs> and help them understand the process and help them make informed decisions. Right, absolutely. It was when I was in private practice that the Syntex Child Protection Court was created by the legislature and my local judge suggested or recommend that I apply. And so that's kind of a circuitous route to getting here, but it's I enjoy this work because we all want to protect children and it is such an important goal. But one of the other parts of this job is also to try to help parents. Um, and so the the whole CPS system is designed to try to help keep kids safe, right? but see if by chance we can work with the parents. A lot of our parents are not 
um, bad, evil parents. They're, they're parents who are struggling. They're parents that didn't have the raising that probably you and I had. Mm-hmm. And so trying to figure out where they may be a little deficient and help them because mostly kids, even kids from the worst situations want to go home to their parents. Absolutely. That's so, what they've known their whole life. Right. And so um, trying to have that balance between protecting children, um, keeping them as happy as they can be, and seeing then if we can reintegrate them back in their home is, and, you know, we, we um, celebrate every adoption but we also celebrate every time a child that can be returned to their parent. Yes, that's a that's a wonderful day as well. What are some of the reasons that children come into foster care? It's a it's a big involved system, and we at CASA are just a part of that system. But can you kind of explain some of the basic reasons why a child might be removed from their original family, from their parents, and then placed in foster care? The beginning of that process. Well, what we're seeing primarily in Central Texas is domestic violence and substance abuse issues, mental health issues. Those are probably the three biggest. Um, You know, often there are also times where we have children that uh, get taken to the hospital and, you know, the explanation that's given to the staff doesn't match the injuries that the staff is seeing. Right. That doesn't happen. Suspicious. Yes. That's not quite as often as just, you know, parents struggling with mental health, substance abuse, um, domestic violence. That's that's the primary um, things that I think we're seeing. Um, And so the way the case gets started is um, you're probably aware that in Texas, if anybody suspects a child has been abused or neglected, they are required to call and make a report. Um, So that can either be lasted a call. It can be a call or it can be done online. Mm And then a, I still say CPS, Department of Family and Protective Services right. <laughs> uh, investigator will review that. Uh, and if it meets the criteria, they will go and depending on the severity, will tell you the timeline. Go um, find a child, visit with um, the family or sometimes collaterals, you know, teachers, medical professionals mm-hmm. that have relevant information. And then, you know, at the end of that investigation, if, if the investigator found that there was a reason to believe that that child or children had been subject to abuse or neglect, then the department would determine what level of a response is necessary to, per- to ensure the safety of the children. And that may mean that the investigator, you know, talks to the family and determines there's not a safety risk for the children and they remain in their home. But then other times, when these are the cases that you then... Uh, preside over in court, it's the children that really are removed from their homes. There's enough safety risk there that they are removed. Yes. And so, so, go ahead. At that time, there's those different options. You know, a child might be placed with relatives that are deemed safe uh, to take care of that child, or they might be placed in a foster home, some different different areas there where the the child can go to be taken care of. Yes. And so... if, I'm sorry. If if children are removed from parents, then the law provides that they're entitled to be in court within 14 days mm-hmm. um, for the court then to hear evidence and, and they can present their ev- evidence to see if the children you know should remain in care, should they be returned to the parents, or you know the law also says that even if they can't be returned to the parents, 
the court should place them with family um, at that hearing unless it is not in the children's best interest. Right. And so some children may not have any other relatives that are appropriate to take care of them either, unfortunately. And that's right. A lot of our parents came from, you know, the situation that they are now find themselves in Mm -hmm. and and not not able to provide a safe and stable home. And so a lot of times, sometimes their families aren't able either. And so that is when a licensed foster home may come into the picture. And so you may recall listeners from a previous episode, we had um, myself and another foster parent on to talk about that process. So you could go back and listen to how licensed foster parents play a role in that. Uh, So judge, once a child is placed in foster care with relatives, what does the typical timeline of a case look like? Now, listeners, we are here in Waco, and so this varies community to community and even state to state. And so uh, this is just kind of a, a general look here at, at what what a case timeline is like here. So, Judge, you want to comment on that and how, sure. how it might vary across states, if you're aware of that? Well, I don't know anything about <laughs> um, other states. All Texas. <laughs> All Texas. And, and the law in Texas is the statutes provide that we are to be hopefully achieving permanency for these children within a one-year time frame. Um, you know, the idea is shortly after children are removed, there's a planning meeting where the parents and folks that love the parents and the children or anyone else can, can come where there can be a discussion of what do these, what do these folks need? What services do they need? What mm-hmm. issues are they having? And so the, the department then will come up with, it's called a family service plan. And, you know, it's, it's services that the department pays for largely. Um, I've always told parents, you know, nobody likes it when the department gets involved, but the department can pay for some things that a lot of folks need. That would help their family. And so, yes. Mm-hmm. So being part of that, um, planning meeting and then the court orders usually right at two months in the case orders that the department provide these services and that the parents participate in the services that the idea is when parents do these services and truly engage in the services then it should put the parents in a position by the end of a one-year time frame to be safely reunited with the children Mm -hmm. So what are some examples of things for the parents that they may have to do to have their kids safely returned to them? I know it's situational, but what are some of the the general processes or or things that they have to do? Well, and because each family service plan is tailored to that individual parent's needs, you know, if we're talking about this case got started because of substance abuse and domestic violence, then, you know, the victim very well may go to some counseling about um, to help them as a victim. The person perpetrating the domestic violence may be going mm-hmm. to classes, um, batterers intervention or anger management. Um, if it's substance abuse, then there will be testing and, you know, hopefully we'll see what, you know, is this a situation where a parent needs inpatient, outpatient, right. um, maybe just some other uh, coping tools uh, that can be, be provided in therapy so that they can, you know, live substance free and find other ways to deal with, you know, uh, frustrations and anxieties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some parents, it's a situation that's pretty quickly and easily 
shored up and it's a success and then others unfortunately aren't able or, or willing to, to follow through with the process so much. Um, Absolutely. So. I I've, I've, I've tell parents, you know, the idea is we have a one-year time frame, but if you go and really engage in these services and can make some changes, it doesn't have to be a year. And we have some cases that, you know, children are successfully reunited uh, after only a few months and then they're monitored. Um, but like you said, some parents just aren't able to engage. And that's always unfortunate to see, but everybody's got a different situation. So you, you mentioned this at the beginning of our conversation a little bit, that it's always the hope that children return to their biological parents. So you want to elaborate on that just a little bit, that you know how we start out hoping for that, and then what are some points where that may change course? Well, the presumption is that children should be raised by their families. Right. Um, the parent-child relationship is protected by our Constitution. Um, so, but, but parents have to be able, I mean, so we can't micromanage every bit of their parenting, but we can ensure that they can provide a safe and stable home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, some folks, you know, most need to be able to earn a living and have a job and be able to provide, you know, or maybe some other way. If, if we have someone that's on disability, but they can still meet their child's needs, then right. um, that's one way. You know, usually what will happen, we start off with the family service plan about two months in, and then by law, we, we evaluate, we have a permanency review hearing um, every 120 days to evaluate how are the, are the parents making progress? What are the issues? Is there something else that we need to provide these parents? Mm-hmm. How are the children doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there is an evaluation at about the six-month mark to say, okay, are we still on, on, we on you know, track? Most, yeah. <laughs> yes. Most every case starts with the goal of family reunification, and it's usually somewhere around the six-month time frame. But if parents are not engaging in services, are still... Um, struggling to make some changes, then the department may look at reevaluating and say, "Okay, are we still on? Are we still on target, or, or do we need to look at maybe some other permanency goal?" Mm-hmm. So, so when um, it turns out ahead. that they can't safely return to biological parents, you know, at that turning point where it looks like this may not, unfortunately, turn out to be one of those successes, what are some of the other outcomes for children from a legal perspective when they're unable to return safely home? Well, if they can't go back with parents, then, you know, a lot of times I want to look at, well, what is the next best thing to their to their parents? Well, so some of these kids have great relationships with their grandparents or aunts right. or uncles, or even, you know, sometimes the department will even find extended family that, you know, maybe this kiddo didn't know too well. But um, there is all sorts of research that says a lot of times children do um do better if they are with family. Mm-hmm. So we look at family and then we also look at what's called fictive kin. And that's just like, you know, if your neighbors down the street are your best friends and you know them and you're in and out of their home all the time, then that may be the next best thing. Right. De- depending on the age of the kids, you know, it could be either one of two ways with either family or fictive kin. And that is 
you know, maybe that you live with them and they have custody, but you still have your parents' parental rights intact. Mm -hmm. They would still pay child support. And then depending on uh, how they were doing, then they could potentially have some visitation rights. Um, with the children. And that that's all agreed upon with the caregiver or the other family members and the parent. Yes. Yeah, it's kind of and structured. That, yes, or um, what we see a lot of times with very young children or children that still are having difficulty with their biological parents. And we may look at either relative or fictive kin adoption mm-hmm. where that placement becomes the new parent for that child. Right. And then another option is uh, unrelated adoption, correct? Yes. Yes. Um, And there are just some very, very loving foster parents that are able and willing to provide a safe and stable home for children that wouldn't otherwise have one. Right. My heart goes out to all the foster parents. I used to serve as an ad litem for children. And so in doing that, I would visit oftentimes with the foster parents. And um, just knowing that you're taking this child into your home that you may have forever or you may have for a little time. And they may may leave you. um, Is It takes a special person to do that. (laughs) Yeah, that's a that's a. Heavy choice, but yeah, we yes. really applaud the folks in our own community and elsewhere that, that do make that choice to take children in. Absolutely. So it's pretty clear that these are big decisions that you make across each case just related to a child's safety day in, day out, and to their permanency in their future. And so that's a big job. Uh, so how do you approach those decisions? You know, what resources do you consider and how do you kind of feel about the weight of those decisions? Um, well, as I had, was just saying, I was the child's ad litem for several years, mm-hmm. um, and it, it was kind of a neat thing because I got to know my kids, and I right. got to know what was, I just got to know them. Uh, as a judge, I rely so heavily on the participants to the process, that is the lawyers, the parties, the caseworkers, and CASA to make sure that they are bringing me the important, relevant information so that I can make a good choice. Um, that's one um, we're going to come back to why CASA is so important in the lives of these kids. But, you know, as a judge, the only way that I get information is what is brought to me. Mm-hmm. Or I, I can confer with children with their lawyers and CASA available, which is I find to be incredibly important. Yeah, I'm sure that's um, very informative to just speak with the children themselves. Y- yes, and, and that is one thing that I sort of miss um, as a judge and, and not as an ad litem for the kids. But, you know, that's um, without all the participants bringing the information, I could not make a good decision. Mm-hmm. Um, I attend, you know, not only just legal seminars, but a lot of times there are also components of those that have psychologists, psychiatrists, um, you know, when everybody started learning about trauma-informed care and how how much that should impact the legal decisions, um, mm-hmm. you know, just seminars, and then also there's just 
I've been practicing in private practice for, well, since 99. And so just kind of learning a lot about how uh, human nature is. Right. And the, a lot of different situations and cases across your career. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so, but again, getting to know kids is, is, is an important part of that. And understanding that most of these kids are put in positions um, where they, they feel like it's up to them, you know, and, and that's one thing I've always told the kids is, you know, most kids, if they think they're, if it's up to them, they think they're choosing somebody and they're not choosing somebody else. That's a, it's hard to put and on their like, shoulders. Yes. And, and it, and it shouldn't be put on their shoulders. Um, and as so, a child, you know, they may not have a full or mature view of the big picture that, the adult right. participants that you've listed have all done a lot of groundwork to present all right. that information to you. So I tried real hard, and I've told I've told everybody that would listen. You know, we really need to treat each of these children like they're our own children. We need to care about them mm-hmm. that much about if they need a doctor's appointment or if you know whatever's going on. Um, and then I I pray for wisdom on a regular basis. And, and I really, I really pray for all of the people that are part of the system, the, yeah. the kids and the parents and the caseworkers. I mean, we all need wisdom because we're not just doing something for us. We're doing something for other people that are going to affect them. And so, yeah, for the rest of their life, possibly. Yes. Yeah. Well, you mentioned CASA earlier as one of those participants. So you want to Chime in a little more about how CASA helps you make your decisions in each case. Sure. Um, you know, everyone in the court in the courtroom, um, they have a client, and their job is to advocate for what their client wants. Um, so, I mean, and, and that's that's part of our system, and it's great. Um, but none of that specifically says. But judge, this is the best thing for this child. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have mom and dad. They want what mom and dad want. The ad litem for the child um, often wears two hats, but their bottom line is they argue for what the child wants. Right. Um, Since that's and their so, client. <laughs> and the department, I, my heart goes out to them. I, my hat comes off to them. They work so hard. They have so many rules and so many policies that they have to follow. Um, but so with CASA, I get an absolutely independent set of eyes and ears to, uh, visit with folks, start a relationship with this child. And they're oftentimes the CASA reports are just filled with information that help me get to know a child a little better. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, CASA will have suggestions that no one else thinks of because, you know, they are all, you know, all the other litigants are doing their job, but, um, so they're just, they're just real, they're real helpful. (laughs) I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) We aim aim to be helpful as CASA. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just a different piece of the puzzle, different angle that we, that we at CASA are able to take. Well, and, and one thing that, you know, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, you know, CASA, CASA has CASA training, but they're, you know, they're not trained lawyers. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them don't have a lot of experience in family law matters. Um, 
so their their um, suggestions are just kind of you know wide open, mm-hmm. and that it's really nice to kind of get the unfiltered. This is what we need to be doing. You know, some sometimes it's awesome, and, and sometimes it's not always possible. But it's nice that we're getting, like I said, a fresh set of eyes and ears to see what we can do to make a kid's life better. Right. The CASA comes not so much from you know, legal training, but you, you probably get some gut feelings from CASAs that, that can play a, an important role in these decisions. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Judge. I believe that's all our questions for today. We really appreciate your time, and we really appreciate all you do for our community's children. Well, and I, I appreciate CASA. This, this new COVID season that mm-hmm. we're in um, has kind of changed the lens a little bit on how we're, we're doing things. Yes. But um, it, CASA is, a, it, it's nice to have CASA. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. Well, I will wrap up by saying that if you suspect child abuse in with someone that you know in your life, it varies state to state. Google your local child abuse hotline, uh, a phone number or a website, and please do report that concern if you believe that a child in your life or that you are in communication with may be a victim of abuse or neglect. Well, thank you, Judge, and we will see you next time. Let, let oh, me say one more thing on that in that regard, Ms. Futrell, and that is you don't need – if you suspect it, don't don't tell yourself, oh, well, I might be wrong, and then what mm-hmm. would happen if I'm wrong? Mm-hmm. Report it. And you can say, I don't know, but, you know. Um, and you then know, there's, tra- there's trained investigators that will yes. figure out yes. how bad is it, is there substance, that kind of by thing. By law, if you report it, and it turns out that it wasn't abuse or neglect, mm-hmm. I mean, you are protected by law. You know, nothing can happen to you. Uh, reach out there and make the call and then let the department do their do their thing. Yeah, absolutely. This has been Rogue Media Network Podcast.